This is Guns and Butter. The history of polio is very dark, it's, it's very strange, and it really began the beginning of the vaccine religion in the United States, as far as I'm concerned, because once the public um, supported the polio campaign, all vaccines kind of followed. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys and Roman Bistrionic. Today's show, Dissolving Illusions, Vaccination, Past and Present. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys and Roman Bistrionic are co-authors of Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys is a medical doctor, internist, and board-certified nephrologist currently in private practice. Roman Bistrionic is a medical researcher and author. Currently, the California legislature is fast-tracking two vaccine Senate bills. SB 277 will eliminate the personal belief and religious exemptions from vaccinations required for children to attend public and private school. SB 792 will require CDC-prescribed adult immunization of child care workers, with the exception of flu vaccine. Today we review some of the history of disease and vaccination covered in Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys, thank you for joining me again. Thank you for having me back, Bonnie. And Roman Bistrionic, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. You are co-authors of the book Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History. How did the two of you come together to write this, uh, shall we call it, History of Disease and the Practice of Vaccination? Dr. Humphreys, let's start with you. Well, I think it all started when Roman heard me on Gary Knoll's show when I was floundering in my very early months trying to talk about polio because early on I realized that polio and smallpox were the two things that were tossed at me whenever somebody had a doubt about what I was saying about flu shots to my sick patients. So I went deep into polio thinking polio is still in the consciousness of people today. So let me go with polio. And to me, smallpox was really interesting, but it was so long ago. So I really focused on polio. And Roman, meanwhile, had been focusing on smallpox. So he heard me on Gary Null talking about polio, and he said, ah, that's the person that I need to write my book with. And Roman had already been in the library for about 15 years, I think. And um, he called my office a few times, and on the third call, I think I called him back. (laughs) And that's um, all right. Yes, and it turned out that he was a real, you know, solid person who really had written an interesting book. And so we met, and uh, it all stemmed from there. And so how about you, Roman? How yeah, do you I feel? had started a number of years earlier. And, uh, yeah, I had heard Suzanne on the radio, and she had been talking about vaccines. And, and at the end, she was talking a little bit about smallpox, and I was like, ah, that's the person I need here. And uh, we got together and uh, wrote the book together. I had written some chapters, but we really wrote the book together. It is a common belief that vaccination is what saved us from the infective scourges of the past. Is this claim a myth? 
For instance, what societal forces or improvements came together to create a healthier environment, and how significant were these improvements? You have included eyewitness descriptions in your book of horrifying living conditions in the past. How bad was it, really? Uh, yeah, well, this is how I got really kind of uh, interested in the whole subject. I had put together some data and created some graphs showing that the mortality rate for these infectious diseases had uh, declined tremendously, in some cases 99 100%, before the vaccine was introduced, and in some cases no vaccine introduced, which led to the question is what caused that massive mortality decline. And what I found out reading uh, literature from the 1800s was the hygienic conditions in the 1800s and the nutritional status was horrifying. Uh, people had really nothing to eat except whatever was carted into the cities, and it was diseased food. They really didn't eat any fruits or vegetables. There was no sanitation, so people just went to the bathroom and went out into the uh, streets. And the same thing with uh, animals. Animals would come into the city, and they would defecate in the streets, and that would all go into the drinking supply. There was no plumbing, so the only thing you drank from was the streams and rivers, and that's what you drank. Uh, people worked horrendous hours, 12, 14, 16 hours a day. Even children were uh, forced to work in factories, even as young as five years old. So you had these conditions where people were overly stressed in horrible hygienic conditions, poor nutrition, and the result was they were susceptible to all sorts of diseases, everything from consumption to scarlet fever, uh, whooping cough, measles, you know, all these things because they were just completely overwhelmed. But that all began to change really starting in the mid-1800s. People saw that things could change hygienically, started washing their hands. This took, of course, decades. Uh, plumbing started coming in. Later on, electricity. So then you could have your first ice boxes and eventually refrigeration. People started getting access to fresh fruits and vegetables. You know, all these things came together, and that's what really caused um, really the decline in all these uh, deaths from these diseases and really just one of the greatest health revolutions in human history, I think. Well, I also noticed in your book that uh, starvation was rampant around the world at different times. I was absolutely amazed at all the starving people. Sure, it wasn't just uh, the potato famine. You know, periodically people were starving because, you know, you have to ship food around. They didn't have the infrastructure we have today. And so, you know, conditions were bad. And even if they had food, it was usually very substandard. It was generally diseased unless you worked on, you know, you lived on a farm. But in the cities, you just got whatever you got. And, uh, you know, things could be hanging up in the window. And, you know, there was no screens, so flies would land on that. And it just, uh, it's even hard to even imagine how horrible it was. So basically, it was the third world conditions uh, as far as the working class and the middle class uh, were concerned. If you were wealthy, then you were pretty well off. But aside from that, you didn't do too well. Dr. Humphreys, is there anything you'd like to add to that? No, I think that's a pretty good summary of the beginning of our book and uh, what the conditions were and what the susceptibility was, really. I would just like to add that a lot of people misinterpret what we've said in the book, and mostly the graphs that Roman put together are looking at death rates 
Okay, so people were having the same diseases that we can have today, but they were dying at a much higher rate because the people were different, not because the disease was any different. But there were some diseases that the diseases actually did decline, like typhoid fever, and there was, you know, scarlet fever, like Roman mentioned. But most of the common diseases, like pertussis, whooping cough, measles, things like that, the incidence really didn't change at all. It was the death rate that changed markedly as the humans, uh, the immune systems and, you know, the constitutions of the humans uh, in these cities changed because of how the environment changed. There are two diseases that are always used when defending vaccine effectiveness and how many people vaccines have saved. Smallpox is the first one that comes to mind, which we don't hear much about today, but polio continues to be an issue in many third world countries. That is, if we are to believe media accounts. Roman Bistrionic, what did you discover in your research for your book, Dissolving Illusions, about the history of smallpox, its eradication, and the part played by the smallpox vaccination? Uh, it's a long history. It began really in the 1700s, before they even had vaccines, they were exposing people to smallpox. And uh, the idea was to expose you to smallpox in a controlled setting. So you would get it and you would get through it because you were healthier at that time as opposed to getting smallpox when you were unexpectedly getting the um, disease. And so that kind of um, procedure called variolation was done before the introduction of what we call vaccination. And it was somewhat successful, but unfortunately it was also spreading diseases, uh, particularly smallpox, because you can imagine if you're scratching smallpox onto somebody's arm, they're going to be a vector of disease. So people were looking for something that was perhaps a little bit better. And early on, 1798, Edward Jenner came up with this idea of taking matter from a cow, ulcers from a cow, and scratching it onto arms of people and thinking that would protect them. And that's where we get the term vaccination from, vodka for cow. Uh, almost immediately when he came up with this idea, he claimed lifelong protection. And a lot of people jumped onto that bandwagon and said, oh, this is a great idea. Other groups of people said, this is, you know, this is basically quackery. This doesn't work. And Really, the year he came out with that list, within a couple of years, it became vaccinationist and anti-vaccinationist right out of the gate. And uh, it was pretty much a brutal battle up until today. In the beginning, it was kind of dicey whether it was going to go forward or not, but there was enough people supporting it, and eventually they put in laws in place in the mid-1800s to force vaccination for the entire population. And even though they had almost 100% vaccination rate because of these compulsory vaccination laws, they still had outbreaks of smallpox. So it didn't really stop anything there. They still pretty much had the same rates of outbreaks of smallpox and death. Up until around 1872, when there was really a pandemic of smallpox, and it killed scores of people. After 1872, people became rather disenchanted with um, the vaccination because people were being killed by the vaccine, killed and injured, and they saw that it really wasn't working. So 
by 1885 uh, in a town called Leicester, England, they protested against it. And they said, we're not going to do this anymore. And they elected a council, a government, that said, okay, well, we're not going to force compulsory vaccination. And their vaccination rates went down to around 10%. The medical professionals at that time said, hey, this is a bad idea. You're all going to suffer for your foolishness. But they never did. They continued not vaccinating and instead um, went for uh, hygiene, sanitation, and isolation. And they were very successful. And they never had a recurrence of massive deaths of smallpox. So, you know, that one example showed that the vaccination wasn't really important at all in taming smallpox. Now, in those early days, were they really vaccinating against smallpox, or did they have it mixed up with cowpox? Well, it gets really kind of confusing. It's hard to tell exactly what they were uh, scratching onto arms of people. Sometimes it may have been this cowpox. Sometimes what they would do is they would expose cows to smallpox, thinking that that somehow changed it into cowpox. And they would also expose it to all sorts of other things. And and back at that time, they were also basically scratching from arm to arm. So you're mixing all sorts of contaminants over and over again from person to person. So they were being subjected to things that was slightly different all the time. In some cases, they were being scraped with something called the grease, which is what actually Edward Jenner thought prevented uh, smallpox, with ulcers on the horse's legs. And so some people got that as well. So it's all kind of mixed, mixed in depending on what time frame and who was doing it? We all have horrible pictures in our minds of smallpox. How horrible was this disease, and did its ravages vary significantly from person to person? Well, it was a horrible disease, but then again, all the diseases back in the 1800s were horrible. You had scarlet fever, which was a much bigger killer than smallpox or whooping cough or, or measles. It was called the fell destroyer. It had a high, high incidence of mortality. And uh, so, you know, all these diseases were horrible back then. But uh, there's entries in the medical literature back in the 1800s of people being exposed to smallpox, and then they recovered fine, and they were declared to be healthier afterwards. And so I found that to be very interesting. Something similar is talked about with measles. Measles is a big killer in the 1800s, and by the 1960s, it was considered, you know, pretty much a mild disease. I'm speaking with nephrologist Dr. Suzanne Humphreys and researcher Roman Bistrionic. Today's show, Dissolving Illusions, Vaccination, Past and Present. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So then would you say that the health of the person uh, who was infected would have um, an effect on how bad they were affected by the disease? Oh, almost certainly. I mean, that's really how this variolation worked. Uh, if somebody was healthy and they were helped through their case of smallpox, they did quite well. A uh, Dr. Squirrel in, I think it was 1801, wrote about the chances of dying from uh, variolation, which is basically exposing somebody to smallpox. It was like basically one in a thousand, according to his estimates. It was pretty rare by that point. So you have to imagine that if the person was healthy, they did much better. And we can also see by the end of the 1800s, late 1800s into the early 1900s, smallpox was being written about as being a mild disease. 
it was having a much lower mortality rate. Traditionally, it was 20 30% mortality rate. And by the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, had fallen dramatically to the point where people were confusing smallpox with like chickenpox. It was very mild. Could I interject on, on something that happened in Yugoslavia in 1972? Yes, I was just going to ask you, Dr. Humphreys, if you wanted to weigh in on this. Yes, I would, because smallpox, you know, it is, I believe that smallpox was a rather virulent disease. And yes, part of the picture was the health of humanity. But the other part of the picture was that the vaccine just was really ineffective. And, and that fact played out in Yugoslavia Yugoslavia in 1972, where at, at that time, we wrote about this in the book, but there was a Yugoslavian Haji pilgrim who was vaccinated in December of 1971 at a public health clinic. And then he went to Iraq on a pilgrimage and he contracted smallpox and brought it back to Yugoslavia. So here we have somebody who should be freshly immune. Um, he goes and picks up smallpox. He brings it back to Yugoslavia, which was a highly vaccinated population, highly compliant with smallpox vaccination. And there were 175 cases and 35 deaths. You know, so that's a pretty high death rate there. But what was interesting is that the World Health Organization's own report said that in the age group of 20 and over, that 92 patients had previously been vaccinated while only 21 were unvaccinated. And they quoted that the relatively large number of previously vaccinated cases among those over seven years of age indicates a decrease in post-vaccinal immunity following primary vaccination, as well as a lack of successful revaccination when they were seven and 14 years old. So if we were to keep going with smallpox, it would be like every other vaccine where we would be told that we need to keep having it every five to 10 years in order to maintain our immunity, because not only did the, obviously the vaccine failed immediately, but long-term it was nothing like what they had thought it was in the past. And how did they get this, this, this epidemic was put under control by the same way that the problems in Leicester, England, and in the old days, was put under control. And that was with isolation. You know, you take a person, you take them out of the population, you sanitize everything in their house, people that are already immune deal with them. And that's how they put out the fire in Yugoslavia. But just to save face for the vaccination, they went ahead and they vaccinated the entire population again, even though they knew that the vaccine was ineffective. So then smallpox is still around, it sounds like, if this was in the 70s. Well, it's very interesting. You know, this is one reason why I kind of stuck more to polio than smallpox. Roman, Roman really had the courage to go to smallpox because I just think there's really not enough good information. But I can tell you that if you Google image monkeypox, you'll be surprised at what you will see on your image. It will look exactly like smallpox. And, and I can also tell you that back in the days before polymerase chain reaction and these sophisticated biological techniques that we use today to distinguish chickenpox from monkeypox, from goatpox and everything else pox, um, you know, looking at the genetic sequences, they weren't able to do that back then. So how many cases were called smallpox that weren't smallpox? I have no idea. But we do know that it did seem to become, um, there was a, a change in the characteristic of the disease. But we also know that they put all kinds of things in this vaccine to the point where it was no longer cowpox or humanpox. It was some sort of a, a, a laboratory-produced hybrid um, that 
even today, and, and again, this is in our smallpox chapter, and, and you know, there's a lot of information in this book, and I'll admit that I don't remember every little detail, but I remember writing about about what the genetic sequencing showed the origins of today's vaccine actually are. And it's pretty crazy. And then to think that this is going to immunize us and protect us against, quote, smallpox, you know, your guess is as good as mine where smallpox really went. But there's a lot of information that shows that the vaccine did not do what it was hoped to do and what the you know, World Health Organization and all the powers that be at the time uh, were saying that it did do. Dr. Humphreys, could you describe what you found out about the eradication of polio and what part polio vaccination played in the history of this disease? Well, yes, I can. And I think the best thing for me to do is to just let everybody know that what I'm going to do is is a very brief synopsis of the bigger story, which really could be an encyclopedia. I also did a 90-minute video called Smoke, Mirrors, and the Disappearance of Polio that's available on YouTube where people can go and um, listen to the fuller picture. But when I started my investigation into polio, I knew nothing. I knew what every other doctor knows, which is that polio was eradicated, that Jonas Salk created one vaccine and Albert Sabin created the other, and that we no longer have it in America thanks to those vaccines. Well, what I found out was that Poliomyelitis is a term that really just means inflammation of the gray matter of the spinal cord, which is just one area inside the spinal cord. And it doesn't really indicate what caused it. Now, there is a such thing as a poliovirus. And I was really surprised when I went to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website and found out that if we infected 100 people with poliovirus that 95% of them would be completely asymptomatic and that approximately 4% of them would maybe have some minor symptoms and a stiff neck and that there might be some paralysis in less than 1% and that the majority of that 1% that their paralysis would recover within 60 days. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So polio actually isn't the um, you know killer virus that we all thought it was, especially when we look at these pictures of these poor kids in the iron lungs and in their casts. And then I learned more about this organization called the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis and the March of Dimes. And I found out that you know those nice little jars that you see at the countertop when you're shopping for the March of Dimes um, it really doesn't stem from um, what I believe is a benevolent mindset. Uh, the history of polio is very dark, it's, it's very strange, and it really began the beginning of the vaccine religion in the United States, as far as I'm concerned, because once the public um, supported the polio campaign, all vaccines kind of followed, and people now think, oh, wow, you know, you think of the polio vaccine, even if you're anti-vaccination, you still want to give your kid the polio vaccine because you don't want them to get polio And that's one of the reasons I went so deep into polio, because it was one of the vaccines that people still held on to. And I thought, well, let me see what really went on there with polio. And it turned out that poliomyelitis, um, actually, we know today, and this this is not, you know, fringe, quack, you know, out there kind of thinking. This is conventional medical literature supports the truth that there were many underlying causes of poliomyelitis. And it was actually the minority that were caused by a polio virus. 
And there are some people in the anti-vaccination campaign who criticize me very heavily and say that actually there's no such thing as a polio virus at all. Suzanne Humphreys, um, it is a toxin and your body is just trying to get rid of something. That I really don't believe. I've spent years now going through the virology and going through the genetics and the genetic code of, of what the, these viruses were and, and how they typed them and there's no way that I believe that's true, but I can tell you that there's still uh, some discord within people that are doubtful about vaccination, and there are people that disagree with me and are actually even more radical than I am, and will say that there's actually no such thing as a polio virus. Well, I don't believe that's true. I believe there's a such thing as a polio virus. I believe viruses are ubiquitous. They're all over the place. There are, th- there are probably a thousand different species populating your colon any one time of, of different kinds of viruses. They're part of the microbiome. Um, and they live benevolently, I should say, or they live harmlessly inside of us. And the polio virus is proof that these viruses can actually live harmlessly inside of us. So once again, the question has to be, what's wrong with the person that they couldn't tolerate having this virus come into them without becoming paralyzed? And the answers I got when I put all the pieces together were that there were toxins in the environment, there were chemicals in the, in the environment, there was DDT, which was basically sprinkled on sandwiches. I mean, it was sprayed on children at school. There, there are videos today of these events that happened in the 1950s. Military was sprayed up, down, and sideways in their pants, in their head, in their hats, and, and then they were sent off to battle. And we describe this in about a 70-page polio chapter in our book, and even if you just look at arsenic, I mean, the story of arsenic is just so crazy. I mean, there was a drug called triparsamide in 1939, marketed by Merck through Rockefeller. And they were giving up to 100 injections of arsenic to people who had syphilis. And they were rubbing mercurials on their skin. They were smoking arsenic. You know, these, these toxins were just everywhere. And, and so these toxins alone, if you look at the... Um, the pharmacology and the toxicology, you find that these toxins are capable of causing all the same symptoms as poliomyelitis, including the same histological changes in the spinal cord that poliovirus can cause. My take on it is that these chemicals trashed the bowel microbiome, and we know that they're very toxic to the bowel. If you have arsenic poisoning, I've witnessed, uh, it was actually uh, a church poisoning up in Maine when I was I was on call, and there were upwards of 20 people that came in after just a tiny bit of arsenic was swallowed in the coffee. These people were so violently sick. They were vomiting. They were having massive diarrhea. You know, the gastrointestinal system is very much disrupted by these toxins, as well as DDT. So when that happens, an otherwise benign enterovirus has the ability to get into your nervous system, get into your body, into your bloodstream and your nervous system and to, and to wreak havoc. And that's really what I believe, how this all kind of fits together. And so we had this you know, media hype in the 1950s that there was this terrible virus going around paralyzing people. And even stranger to me was that there was an event um, in, in 1916 where there was an escape virus out of the Rockefeller labs in New York City, and the mortality rate from that escape virus was 25%. Well, you know, that set the stage for America to really embrace this anti-polio campaign and to support the March of Dimes, donating dimes, which added up to millions and millions of dollars to get this vaccine on, on track. The scientists that disagreed with how it was done were fired, and that's also very well documented in our book. 
So eventually they had a very agreeable scientific um, group who got together and, um, and produced this vaccine, which the first year that it was out, we know was a disaster. It paralyzed hundreds of people. And those are just the ones that were accepted and reported um, by the public health department. I'm speaking with nephrologist Dr. Suzanne Humphreys and researcher Roman Bistrionic. Today's show, Dissolving Illusions, Vaccination, Past and Present. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So the story of polio, you know, I could really just go on and on and on. But let me just fast forward now to we have the vaccine. And all of a sudden they decided that the numbers weren't working out as well as they, as they should have been. So they changed the diagnostic criteria of polio and they changed it so that um, in 1955, the year that the mass vaccination initiation, two exams of any one patient 60 days apart had to show paralysis, where in the past you only had to have two exams within 24 hours. So what they did, because paralysis had actually increased 50% from 1957 to 1958 and 80% from 1958 to 1959, these new definitions helped to hide the fact that in the era of vaccination, they were seeing actually more paralysis. So they redefined polio. And in that redefining, they were basically reporting a new disease, which was paralytic poliomyelitis with a longer lasting paralysis. And so the decline in polio diagnosis would have happened whether they had a vaccine or not because they changed how they labeled something polio and who could actually call it polio. They also redefined what a polio epidemic was. It used to be that 20 out of 100,000 in the population was considered an epidemic, but they moved that up to 35 in 100,000 per year after the Salk vaccine was released. So between that and changing the length of paralysis from 24 hours to 60 days, and also any polio that occurred within 30 days of vaccination was not logged as vaccine-induced, but as pre-existing poliomyelitis. So this ignored the vaccine failures and vaccine-induced cases. So all of these manipulations eliminated a large portion of what was probably non-paralytic polio. Um, so that's just another part of the story that's, um, that's really interesting. And then if we go to 1958, there was a big polio epidemic in Michigan. And somebody decided to let's see uh, which, which of these cases that were labeled as poliomyelitis because they had paralysis and all the other symptoms actually manifested poliovirus either in their stool or in their blood. And what they found is they got 869 stool specimens and they found there was no virus in 401 of them. There was poliovirus in 292 and there were other viruses in the rest Really interesting, isn't it? I mean, basically just slightly over one quarter of all these cases actually had poliovirus. Then they looked at antibody changes in blood tests. And if you're infected with polio in the bloodstream, uh, you should see a rise in certain antibodies. So they looked at 191 of these patients and they found there was no antibody change in 123 of them, that there was evidence of poliovirus in 48 of them, and other viruses in the rest. So again, only around one quarter of these people actually had poliovirus. So to summarize, we had, we had problems with the diagnosis. We had problems that there were other things that were causing polio. And we had problems with relabeling later after the vaccine came out in order to elevate and support a vaccine that was actually causing more paralysis in that year than the wild virus caused. 
So then are there other types of paralysis that have been classified as polio? Oh, yes. Actually, one of the most interesting cases is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He's the most famous polio case you could probably think of, right? Yes. Well, according to a team of modern doctors who analyzed extensively his medical records assessing the likelihood that he had polio. I mean, these were neurologists who had access to all of his medical records, and this was published in 2003 in the Journal of Medical Biologics. They determined that the paralysis was actually Guillaume-Barre syndrome and not polio at all, not poliomyelitis from a polio virus. So there is a big, long list of, of entities that look just like polio and that once you rule out a polio virus... You could call it these other things like Coxsackie virus, echovirus, vaccine-associated, cytomegalovirus, varicella zoster virus, Guillaume-Barre syndrome, transverse myelitis, which we have hundreds of cases per year of infants on, on what today would be iron lungs, but they're called ventilators, exotoxin from diphtheria, botulism. You know, there are all kinds of other things now that we're starting to distinguish and do testing that we find, and we're not finding poliovirus per se. And what is Guillain-Barre? Oh, that is, it's a syndrome whereby there's paralysis that progresses over a period of time. It's been associated with vaccination. It's been associated with certain viral infections. And basically the medical community really doesn't understand it very well and doesn't really have great ways to treat it. Do you know whether or not Franklin Roosevelt was ever vaccinated against polio? No, he wasn't because his disease occurred much longer before the vaccine was available. But what we do know about him is that the day that he became paralyzed, he was swimming uh, up off the coast of between Canada and Maine in water that was upstream. I believe it was from uh, a tannery and they had just dumped some chemicals into the water. And the other thing with Franklin Delano Roosevelt is that he was treated the way the, the children who developed the problems with the one short leg and one long leg, uh, he, was, he was immobilized. He was put into a cast and immobilized for a long period of time. And we now know today that that's actually the worst thing you can do to somebody who has acute flaccid paralysis, especially from a viral infection, and that just the immobilization itself makes any potential neurologic degeneration worse. In fact, if I were to take a healthy person's leg and immobilize it the way they did with polio virus, especially a growing child, you're certainly going to have um, deformities later on. They were doing barbaric treatments that were reported by um, you know, medical physicians of the time, like tendon transplantation and uh, electric treatments. And they were really trying anything. And they were ignoring the one person who was having the most success at treating the paralysis. And that was a lady, a nurse named Elizabeth Kenny. And I talk a lot about her in the video and we wrote a lot about her in the book. And Elizabeth Kenny was actually um, really despised by the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. And they pretended to support her, where in the meantime, they were really trying to undermine her. Uh, because if her techniques were adopted and poliomyelitis was reversible as, as readily as she was showing it could be, then where would this vaccine campaign be? And that might sound like a crazy conspiracy theory, but you can go ahead and read the history books yourself. You can read her autobiography. You can read about what doctors in Minnesota were saying about her and doctors all around the world, how they were comparing what she was able to do to what the orthopedic surgeons could do. And they first allowed her only to treat the leftovers that the orthopedic surgeons had already messed up 
really badly and they had pretty much given up on and she would would actually bring a lot of these kids back to some semblance of functionality and then she was finally able to be able to treat fresh freshly diagnosed poliomyelitis and she was actually able to keep people out of iron lungs and so her technique was actually very highly successful and it's really a shame that it's been forgotten and when you mention the third world today what you will see is where this vaccine is being promoted how they're treating poliomyelitis today is just the wrong way that they were treating it in the old days. They're not using Sister Elizabeth Kenny's methods. They're using the methods that didn't work before, which is immobilization and casting of these contracted limbs. Well, what was her technique? Uh, she had, uh, it was a combination. She never immobilized um, that way. Her analysis was completely different from what the orthopedics analysis was. Um, they were basically saying that everything was paralyzed and she was saying no, there was a real problem with spasm. I mean, you know how you have opposing muscles. Let's say take your arm, you know, you have your bicep, which you can do a curl with, and then there are muscles on the other side which pull your arm down again. Well, she was saying that the one set of those muscles was in spasm and it wasn't a problem of paralysis, it was a problem of spasm. And so she was treating with hot woolen packs and in that treatment she was not only taking care of a lot of the pain in, in these kids, but the spasm was going down. And she was also very much into nutrition, which is really important when treating poliomyelitis. And then afterwards, she was probably one of the very early physical therapists. The woman was a genius. I mean, reading her story, she first rehabilitated her brother when he was a, a little weakling and he became one of the strongest men in the army. But um, you know, she was an inventor and she had a very good mechanical mind. And so she also developed techniques to basically re-educate the brain muscle connection after this problem happened so that kids that were lying there thinking they couldn't move their muscles. It was actually because there was some sort of a disconnect that happened between the brain and the muscle. And she basically started doing physical therapy and it was very successful. She got a lot of people back on their feet 100% that the orthopedic surgeons would have completely had them be cripples for the rest of their lives. Well, that's very interesting. Is it possible for a person to have the polio virus and no paralysis? And if so, how do you account for this? Well, yes. I mean, those would be the 95% that the CDC has on their website. And interestingly enough, um, you know, they used to have this data. And I went back on their website about a year ago, and I found that they've actually changed it. They, they don't have that same data on there right now. But I PDF'd it, and I have screenshots of how the CDC defined it, just the way I told you. So the majority of people that get infected with poliomyelitis never even know it, just like the majority of viruses that are in your body right now that are not making you sick. It's because, once again, it's not so much about the virus as it is about the susceptibility and the ability to have entrance of this problem into your body because the commensals that should be out-competing these other viruses are, are unhealthy, and because the, um, the leakiness of the gut is really high. Is there evidence that childhood diseases such as measles, mumps, and chickenpox serve a useful purpose? Are vaccines suppressing a natural process in children that is actually there for a reason? Uh, what do you think about that, Roman? Well, if you read the literature from the medical literature from the 1950s, they talk about how mothers noted that people who went through measles um, were stronger and healthier after their bout of measles. So there is evidence of, you know, and there's people that talk about that, um, that it did perform some type of function. Now, if you were malnourished, 
if you were low on vitamin A, vitamin C, and you were hit with measles, then you were in deep trouble. But I think that if you were healthy, you went through measles, you were ended up healthier on the other side, and then you had lifelong immunity. Dr. Humphreys, what do you think about the idea that uh, childhood diseases such as measles, mumps, and chicken pox may in fact serve a useful purpose? Well, what I know is that the measles infection does have a profound effect upon the immune system. It's very complicated and it's actually very poorly understood. Um, one of the things we wrote about in the book, as Roman alluded to, were cases that were written up in the medical literature of people who, say, had kidney disease where they were losing massive amounts of protein in their urine. And after they developed a case of measles, everybody thought, oh, they're, they're definitely going to die now. We thought they were going to die because they had this disease, but now they've got measles. So they would buy their funeral suits, and lo and behold, the kid would, would improve and get better. And so we've seen that happen, and we've also seen tumors melt away after measles infection. So measles is actually a treatment uh, that that scientists are working on, high-dose measles um, therapy for people who have certain tumors, because we know that it has an effect upon the immune system. But that effect is dependent upon the nutritional status of the person. So if you take measles and infect somebody who has very poor innate immunity or cell-mediated immunity, which is dependent upon certain vitamins like vitamin A and vitamin C and certain minerals, then they're going to be devastated by measles. And I would not say that those people are going to have an improvement in their life. They're more likely to be dead. So I can't say that serves a useful purpose to those people. Um, If you have people who um, have a healthy cell-mediated immunity, then those people generally get through it. And what happens with measles is that It's basically like a molting process that happens in many organs of the body. You know, the liver, the intestines, the skin, uh, the kidneys. Any of your cells that get infected with measles are basically annihilated and killed off by your immune system. And some of your immune cells are also killed off. So there's lots of medical literature that says that uh, with a healthy cell-mediated immunity, not only are you much easier able to tolerate the vaccine, but you're also much more likely to deal with the infection gracefully and recover without significant sequelae. And then, as Roman said, have approximately 75 years of immunity, as as we know from an isolated event that happened on some islands called the Faroe Islands. I'm speaking with nephrologist Dr. Suzanne Humphreys and researcher Roman Bistrionic. Today's show, Dissolving Illusions, Vaccination, Past and Present. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Do I think chicken pox and mumps serve a purpose? I don't really know. I, I've never found evidence that either of those diseases serve a useful purpose. You know, the only thing about chicken pox is that, you know, if you do have chicken pox, then you're later susceptible to having shingles. So a lot of parents ask me, should I take my kid to a chicken pox party because I want them to have it when they're young? And, you know, it's a really hard thing to answer because if you can go your whole life without having chicken pox at all, then that means you can go your whole life without having shingles if you become immunocompromised for some reason later. I don't really believe chicken pox serves a useful purpose, but I believe that it was an endemic virus that was better to catch at a certain age than it was, um, you know, older ages. But the hype about getting chicken pox as an adult, you know, it's really not borne out in what I have noticed clinically. What's an exanthem? An exanthem basically means it's a widespread rash that occurs in children. 
and it can be caused by toxins, uh, by drugs, and by different microorganisms, and actually it can be caused by even autoimmune diseases. So it just basically means it's a certain kind of rash, and uh, they're very common in childhood, and they're associated with many different skin infections like enteroviruses, chicken pox, measles, German measles, things like that. Is it possible that vaccination may itself be causing disease? Have you found evidence that this possibility is real but uh, very little understood? Well, you know, that's really what started my quest here. Before 2009, I was vaccinating my patients. You know, I had accepted vaccines before medical school, never suspecting anything. And it wasn't until I started to see disease myself. And Roman can tell you about his own children and what happened after they were vaccinated. But all you have to do is go look at the vaccine adverse event reporting system. Look at the package inserts, which report what diseases are are potential. The patient reports, the, the letters that I get every day from parents, you know, are very sad. Uh, Look at what honest doctors are willing to say. Look at what the Supreme Court said during the recent trial when they said that vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. You know, they're basically saying, look, you know, we can't guarantee 100% safety here. Um, Look at what Dr. James Shannon of the NIH said back in the 1950s during one of the Senate hearings. And he wasn't being sarcastic. He was just stating a fact. And he said, the only safe vaccine is the one never given because you don't know who's going to have an adverse event after a vaccine. And there's no such thing as 100% safe vaccine. Look at what doctors Jonas and Daryl Salk said in March 4th, 1977, which Roman and I put in the book as a quote, but they said that live virus vaccines against paralytic poliomyelitis, for example, may in each instance produce the disease it's intended to prevent. The live virus vaccines against measles and mumps may produce such side effects as encephalitis. Both of these problems are due to the inherent difficulty of controlling live viruses once they are placed in a live person. And that's really the crux of the matter is that because we're all different, because our nutritional status is all different, because our vaccination status and drugs that we're taking, how we were born, whether we were breastfed or not, we're all different. Genetically, we're actually slightly different from each other. And so because of that, we are not a uniform population. And so one-size-fits-all vaccination program doesn't make any sense to say that everything's going to be just fine after we inject all of you with this same, very same vaccine because of just what the Dr. Salk said is that we don't know what happens after it's put into each person because the vaccinomics and the vaccinologists today and the vaccinogenomics and all these new branches of medicine that are evolving are basically about that, that we're all so different that we genetically respond differently to different vaccines. Roman, in your book, Dissolving Illusions, you include 50 graphs that present a view of the history of disease from the 1800s into the 1900s. What do these graphs illustrate? Uh, Just as a note, they're all available on dissolvingillusions.com, the full-color graphs, so anybody can go look at those anytime they want. Uh, They show a lot of different things. A lot of them are the mortality declines, and again, that's what really got me going into this project in the first place. You can see the mortality declines for scarlet fever, whooping cough, uh, measles, um, all these different diseases declining in England, in various states in the United States. And it just, no matter where I looked, it always showed the same thing from the 1800s into the 1900s, 
measles, um, these various diseases all just plummeted in mortality rate. There was a whole bunch of different types of graphs in there showing that type of information and even uh, various incidence graphs in there as well. So what are you saying, that these diseases were in a steep decline before the practice of vaccination was introduced? Well, certainly that, and then in some cases, take scarlet fever, for example, uh, declined without any type of vaccine and any kind of widespread use. So, yeah, all these things went down quite a bit. For example, uh, measles in England, the mortality rate declined by almost 100% before that uh, the vaccine was even introduced. Now, the incidence rate, that's a little different. Uh, there was a decline in incidence, but after the vaccine for measles, there was a decline in the incidence, and that's why we don't see measles today. Well, right, and we were talking earlier, you were making the distinction between the mortality rate and the morbidity rate. I mean, were there uh, records of how many people would actually come down with these diseases or not? Well, there were more in the 1900s. I'm not aware of any things in the 1800s. They more kept track of the, uh, the mortality rates. Uh, the incidence rates, they started keeping track, and sometime during the 1900s. And so we have you know, that data and those graphs in the book as well. Since a lot of these vaccines are relatively new, that is, they have been introduced in the last two or three or four decades, does it still remain to be seen if when these vaccines wear off, assuming they do in certain people, that elderly people would suddenly start coming down with some of these diseases that they've been vaccinated against? I mean, I guess we don't really have the whole picture on that yet, do we? Oh, we've got plenty of information on that. And um, even if you just look at what happened in California recently, you know, back in the old days before vaccines, what we had was a situation where babies almost never got infected with measles. And children between the age of 2 and 15, about 95 to 97% of them developed measles by the time they were 15. And adults never got measles. And once you developed the disease, you had lifelong immunity. So you were really protecting the herd better than somebody today who's been vaccinated. And the reason is today those immune people, like my grandmother, have died off. And my mother and father have died off. So the people that were really had solid immunity from the natural disease, are gone. And so what we're left with now is a vaccinated population. And what's happened is that we've taken measles successfully away from the population that handles it the most graceful, and that is the toddlers and the uh, older kids. And now we're seeing cases in young babies when measles comes to town, and we're seeing cases in older adults. And the, the case in California there was an enormous amount of, of cases in the older adults. Now, you did say that before vaccinations, no adults got measles. But, I mean, occasionally an adult would, wouldn't they? It was very rare. It would be extremely rare because if you look at the scientists that wrote about herd immunity, Hedrick wrote about it, if, if 95 to 97% of, of your population has had the disease by the time they're 15, then you might have some younger adults developing measles. And we did see it happen sometimes in the military where they were you know, younger adults, 18 and 20. And those were probably people that were living out away from one of the more populated areas. And then they were later exposed and would develop it. So there were some adults that were developing measles, but nothing like today. When we look at 
the age distribution in California of our outbreak, 56% of those cases were over 20 years old. I mean, in the old days, it wouldn't have been more than 5%. And if you look at the less than one-year-olds, 11% of those cases in California were less than one-year-old. That would, would have been less than 1% back before the vaccine because mothers who have the natural disease maintain a level of solid immunity that they are able to pass to the baby through the placenta and in part through their milk. Vaccinated mothers don't, and that's also well established in many, many medical articles, conventional medical articles in the medical literature. Now, the reason I ask you about that, Suzanne, is that when I was young, there was a girl that lived near us who was deaf, and the story was that her mother had caught the measles when she was pregnant with this girl. Have you heard of that? Yes, that certainly can happen. You know, the thing is, there's no guarantee whether, whether vaccines are here or whether they're not. What we have to look at is what is the higher risk. So there's always going to be death from diseases, and there's always going to be death after vaccination. And there will be mothers who will contract diseases when they're pregnant. That's really not ideal. You don't want to have very young babies contracting measles, and you don't want to have pregnant mothers contracting measles. And the reason is that pregnant mothers are immunosuppressed. Their cell-mediated immunity is intentionally clamped down in order to tolerate that baby inside of them that is genetically different. It's basically like tolerating a transplant to some degree also because it has some of the father's genetic material as well. So it would otherwise be seen as foreign if that cell-mediated immunity was normal. So mother's immune systems are, are unable to deal with measles very well, and then it gets in and causes problems in the fetus. And depending on what trimester, it can be much worse. So you're going to hear of cases in the old days of people who, you know, but it would be very, very rare because, as I said, most people had the disease by the time they were 15. But you also have to remember that it wasn't uncommon to be pregnant when you were 13 back then. What is herd immunity, and is it a valid concept? Yes, Herd immunity is a valid concept. Uh, it's just a reality, actually. What the term means is that if most of the people in the population have immunity, that the people around them that don't have immunity will be essentially blocked from a disease because it'll be interrupted by the people that do have immunity. And that's why it's called herd immunity. And Dr. Hedrick um, I believe it was in the 1920s, is the one who first looked at this, looking at measles in Baltimore, Maryland. What he found was that when the amount of susceptibles in the childhood population reached around 45%, that epidemics occurred. And then there would be a short wave of measles, and then it would stop until the susceptibles dropped to around 35%. But in no time was he describing that there was 95% immunity in the childhood population. He was describing a much lower level of immunity that, that was interrupting transmission. And that's what herd immunity meant when it was first coined, and it was, it was directed at the natural disease. And then vaccination came along. And in the beginning with measles, they said, well, we just have to vaccinate a small part of the childhood population, and we will eradicate this disease in three years. Well, guess what? That didn't happen. Uh, because 1967 rolled along and uh, there was no eradication of measles. So then they, they set a new goal and they increased the amount of children they said they had to vaccinate and they still didn't reach their goal. 
So then they said, well, this vaccine isn't working quite as well as we thought it was. So now we need to give all the children two vaccines and we need to raise the amount in the population that are getting vaccinated to 90 or 95 percent. And so that worked a lot better. But now today we're seeing epidemics again. And so they're saying, well, 95% isn't enough to give us herd immunity because we're still getting transmission. So now we need to go to 98 or 99%. And this is the most recent um, recommendation that's been put out by certain uh, medical journals and, and writers in medical journals is that we now need 99% in order to provide herd immunity. Roman Bistrionic, thank you very much. And thank you, uh, Dr. Oh. Suzanne Humphreys. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie. Is something happening here? Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Dr. Suzanne Humphreys and Roman Bistrionic. Today's show has been Dissolving Illusions, Vaccination, Past and Present. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys and Roman Bistrionic are co-authors of Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys is a medical doctor, internist, and board-certified nephrologist, currently in private practice. Roman Bistrionic is a medical researcher and author. He has been researching the history of diseases and vaccines for more than 15 years and has an extensive background in health and nutrition. Currently, the California legislature is fast-tracking two vaccine Senate bills. SB 277 will eliminate the personal belief and religious exemptions from vaccines required for children to attend public and private school. SB 792 will require CDC-prescribed adult immunization of child care workers, with the exception of flu vaccine. Visit DissolvingIllusions.com. That's DissolvingIllusions.com. And visit DrSuzanne.net. That's D-R-S-U-Z-A-N-N-E dot N-E-T. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list and receive our newsletter. Guns and Butter Online now includes a new website, an active Twitter feed, show archives, and a blog. Follow us at G&B Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, Peace, give thanks, live life, and release. You think-